Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we examine your word. Show us what you'd want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Peter chapter 2. We left off at verse 9, and I want to read verse 9 just for some context as we move forward because he was talking about judgment coming. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, that despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels which were greater in power and might bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. But these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. And they shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots are they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. A heart have they exercised, covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Babylon, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked in his iniquity. The dumb donkey, speaking with the man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. All in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> didn't breathe, didn't stop, and we're going to try to break this sentence down a little bit. Chapter 2, starting with, we read verse 9 for context. So here Peter says, but, which means something is changing in this, because he was talking about how God delivers his righteous people, and he goes, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. So he says, mainly, those that walk. And this whole idea of walking is to become an adherent to, in this particular case, to give yourself over to, an adherent, somebody who changes what they believe to something else and starts following something else. He goes, they chiefly become an inherent, inherent, adherent to the flesh. The whole idea of the flesh is the human nature. Right? Usually when they use the, the word flesh in the New Testament, they're not literally talking about our flesh and blood. They're talking about all of the sin nature that is involved in the flesh, our proneness to sin, our proneness to oppose God. And so he says, these people that are prone to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And lust is that whole idea of desire, appetite for something. Generally, it's used in the, in the bad sense. You can lust after something good. I could, you know, but we don't usually use that word lust. If I'm lusting after the Bible or lusting to be in churches, you know, it's a valid use of the word, but it's not the way we normally use that word. It normally indicates a negative longing and desire. And in this case, it definitely, their lust is for uncleanness, something that pollutes the body. How often do we spend time in uncleanness, polluting our Bible. Uh, it's going to be a fun, fun afternoon. 
polluting our minds with uncleanness. And it's so easy in our day and age to do that. What, what, what do I watch? What do I read? What do I listen to? Who do I spend my time with? And there are people that desire these things, desire deeply all of this pollution in their mind and filling their mind with garbage, which is why it is very important for us to spend time in God's word, spend time being taught, and just filling our mind with God. And this will happen. We talked a lot about this. You know, when you talk about a tithe, and most people always refer to money on tithe, and I really believe God wants a tithe of our time. If I spend two and a half hours every day with God, I do a lot to block out all the uncleanness that gets flooded into my mind. And that doesn't mean reading my Bible and praying the whole two and a half hours, but spending time with God. That may mean listening to a message. It may mean praying and just listening. It may mean meditating. You know, meditating on his word. Not worry the spiritualists talk about. You know, the spiritualists talk about meditating. I empty my mind and think of nothing. So the spirits, the, the demons can get in there and flood my mind with all kinds of stuff because I'm thinking of nothing because I'm trying to meditate. That is not what meditate means in the Bible. If they're not heaven, all the spirits of the good people should be in heaven, not down here trying to get in our mind. But even, even for somebody who dies, and this is something for you to be able to remember, when somebody dies, they still leave this world and are sent to wait in hell. The holding area for those waiting for the white throne judgment is hell. So we as Christians, we go before God, we go through the Bema Seat, we get received into heaven. The dead will go to hell. They're not walking around trying to find something. They're not trying to help people. They're not trying to haunt people. All of these things that are going on are being done by the demonic world. And the demons know you well enough and they know what was said. They can, you know, people go, well, I heard things that only my great-grandfather would have known because we were out in the in the forest alone when he told me this. And you thought you were alone with all the demonic and, and, and angelic world around you? you know, it's not hard for the demons to have heard and overheard. So, you know, and this is, this is why it's important for us to understand, just because you get something personal from this spirit does not mean it is your family or, or your relative that died. It's just a demon impersonating. Satan comes as an angel of light. His demons come as angels of light. They started out as angels, and they know how to play the game. They've been around a couple thousand years. They, they know how to play the game really well, and they're pretty smart to begin with. So we want to be careful about that whole idea, and I don't know why I'm on this, but it is important for us to understand. People talk about seeing ghosts. They talk about hearing from their dead, departed relatives and so we just want to be careful about this. We live in a flesh and blood world. When our body dies, we either go before God or we go to hell, and hell is a waiting place until the white throne judgment, in which, after which time they will go into the lake of fire for the rest of eternity. And you kind of, I kind of pointed out that hell is kind of like the local jail. When people do a severe crime, they go to the local jail and they're held there until they go to court and get sent to prison. And so hell is kind of the local jail. It's not good. <laughs> it's a terrible place. Almost as bad as hell, you know, the lake of fire. But in Revelation read, after the white throne judgment, that all those that were guilty and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So we have another realm of judgment afterwards. 
So back to our, our chapter we're studying. The, the lust of the uncleanness and the despise government. Now this is an interesting statement because this idea for despise is disdain, but government here is not just kings and thrones, it is any authority, lord, anybody with dominion. So those that refuse to be in subjection to their authorities are in this, are in this verse, when they refuse to be in subjection. Because what is that is? It's really pride, an avenue of pride. Look at me. I, I am so important, I don't need to listen to anybody. And Satan loves to get us into that one. That one is one that's very hard for all of us at some point in time. It is so easy. Well, who does that person think they are to tell me what to do? Well, they're the boss. They're the, <laughs> they're the government. Uh, they're they're the, the head of the family, whatever it might be. And if we are despising that and that doesn't mean that we don't obey it just means I obey with grumbling you know I may be very obedient but I'm grumbling at every moment of that obedience that's still disdaining still not paying attention these verses these just these two just these two sins are hard-hitting sins when you look at them you know that Lust after uncleanness and despise or will not submit to authority. And this is something that he says, God judges these things. Now, this, you know, and a wonderful thing, and we're going to see if we get that far today, which I don't think so. At the end of this chapter, he says, it is better for somebody not to have known God's word and truth than to reject it. Because when you know it, you know how bad you really are. And this is one of these things where we look at this and go, God, how many times do I lust after the unclean things? How many times do I desire after things that I shouldn't desire after? How many times do maybe I obey, but I grumble and gripe about that and not submit to the government? And we start looking at these things and going, wow, I'm really not a good person. And this is what you look at when you see these things. Even when we're a Christian, we're going to heaven, and we start looking at what God says, we go, wow, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. <laughs> you know, and maybe I'm not there yet. And that's a good place to be, because God will work in sanctification and working with us. And then he goes, presumptuous are they. Now, presumptuous is quite a word. Uh, and I'm always worried about this one, because sometimes when we pray, we can get very presumptuous. And that means to take things lightly or take things for granted. It also has the idea of being unpleasantly bold. I've known some people, especially in the faith movement, they will, God, I'm going to, I'm, I pray that you're going to heal me of my, of my, my eyes. I'm not going to need glasses anymore. And the first thing they do is they take their $200 pair of glasses and break them and throw them away. Because God is going to heal them. Well, if God said he's going to heal you, that is a fine and dandy thing to do. But don't do it just because you're being presumptuous. You know, well, God, I know that you can meet all my needs, so I'm going to quit my good job because you're going to just take care of my needs, and I really just can't stand that boss breaking, breaking the despising of the government. You know, I can't stand that boss. He's, he or she is awful, terrible person, and I'm just going to quit my job because you can take care of me. Well... 
Maybe if you learn to not despise your, your leaders, you might have been happier in the job in the first place. And believe me, I understand bad bosses. I've had several in my lifetime you know, that are, are crazy, ornery, nitpicky, in some cases asking you to do things that are illegal and you, you're always battling with them about not doing what's illegal. I've been there, had to do that, had to leave one job because of his illegal pers you know, requests because he wouldn't change, he wouldn't let me do things the, way, the right way. And I'm going, okay, God, you need to take care of me on this one because I cannot work for this guy because I'm not going to do the wrong things. But you know, if all you do is just don't like the person, maybe there's submission issues that need to be taken. And this is something we need to be being presumptuous. And it's easy and sometimes it's hard. How, where, do you, where do you draw the line between being faith, having great faith and being presumptuous. And that's going to be different for each person. A lot, you know, I love the story of George Mueller, but a lot of people look at George Mueller and say, what a presumptuous guy. He just, because he never would ask for money. He would just, the only person he asked was God. And he was one of those that never told him, anybody that he needed money, that he needed things. God always provided. I would have trouble with that because I would feel like I was being presumptuous. <laughs> and that comes down to, where, is, where are you with God? And one person's presumptuous activity may not be maybe somebody else's faith activity. But, you know, if God doesn't follow through, then you know it was presumption. And the problem with that is all things that you do that are wrong have consequences. Like the guy who prays that God's going to heal their, you know, heal their eyes and destroys their glasses, they have a consequence, a very minor one at least. They're going to spend another $200 on glasses. <laughs> you know, that would be the least of their problems. Now, if they're supposed to wear glasses when they're driving, they could have even greater consequences. They just destroyed their glasses and they can't see. And, you know, I hate to see people drive they can't see. <laughs> uh, they're very dangerous. They're presumptuous. They're self-willed. They are not afraid to speak e evil of dignitaries. <laughs> these are the people that God is saying are, are these bad people that desire, desire. self-willed seeking their own pleasure over and over again seeking their own pleasure and then they're not afraid and this word for fear is not phobia which is normal fear it is they do not tremble they have no respect they have no honor to speak evil of dignitaries huh dignities uh, all right we'll take dignities that'll be fine same thing in, in the long run. But dignities would be of good things. Uh, not an evil, not afraid to speak evil. Have you ever been around somebody that will speak evil of things that are good? Our day and age is full of them. You know, where good is being called bad and bad is being called good. You know, people speak evil all the time of things that are done right. They'll make fun of us. Uh, how could you be so nice to that person? They didn't deserve it. Of course they didn't deserve it. God wants me to give grace. Well, it's not good to be nice. You might, you might be encouraging them to stay bad. No, actually, usually when you're nice to somebody who deserves evil, it really bugs them. It really does. They may still try to take advantage of you, but deep down, they're, being, they're under conviction. They look at what they do to you and go, how can that person be? They're not, they're not uh, giving, trying to get revenge. Or worse yet, they're going, when are they going to get back at me? They're just waiting for, <laughs> they're waiting long enough to get back at me. This is the idea that God is saying. These people, 
are presumptuous. They seek their own pleasure and they speak evil of everything that's good. This is a dangerous place to be. And then he goes into talking about angels. Whereas angels which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. So now he switches from the evil people to angels. And these are messengers. Then uh, he says, whereby the angels which are greater in ability and in power is what it really breaks down in, Hebrew, in, in the Greek. Uh, this word for power is not dunamis. It's the word for ability. And the word they translate might is dunamis, which is usually translated power. So he says that angels have more ability than we do and are more powerful than we are. And it is a true statement. They, they've been around longer and they have a lot of power, a lot of, a lot of activity in the spiritual world. And it says they do not bring railing or blasphemous accusations against them before the Lord. Now it's kind of interesting because I, I was wondering who them is. Okay, If it's the immediate context, the angels do not bring railing accusations against angels, which would probably mean the fallen angels. And we know that that's true in Jude when he references uh, Michael and Lucifer fighting over the body of, of Moses. Uh, Michael did not bring an accusation against Lucifer. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He went to the, to the higher authority. And it is possible that he's talking about the, even the good angels do not bring railing accusations against the bad angels. The other possibility, because there's another them that we've been talking about in just the previous verse, all the evil people. I don't really think that's the case because that's what Satan gets his name, the accuser of the brethren. He stands before God accusing the brethren. But who does he, who does he accuse? He accuses Christians. I don't think Satan cares up in heaven that somebody who's not a Christian does anything wrong. He is not up in heaven accusing them before God because they're not, go they're not God's child in the first place. He's going to see them go to hell with him and the other angels, so I don't believe he's talking about that. So it could fit either way. He's either saying he's not in heaven accusing those that are, are evil or he's not accusing the bad angels or both. So, and I saw, when I want to find something like this, where I don't know, I try to find out with some of the other people and, and they both get the same questions I had. So there's no answer. <laughs> I don't know who the them is. It's one of the things I hate about pronouns is unless they make clear what the antecedent is, we don't know what they're talking about. And in this case, both of them fit. He could be the bad angels and not standing with blasphemous statements about the, the fallen angels, or they're not giving blasphemous uh, accusations against the evil. No. The only one that gives them strength is God. And this takes us into the whole idea of authority. When God places somebody in authority, they're in authority whether they deserve it or not. And this is why sometimes you'll get a wife saying, well, my husband doesn't deserve my submission. The Bible doesn't say be submitted to your husband only when he deserves it. You know, you, you go, my boss doesn't deserve submission. The Bible doesn't say submit to yourself only when the boss deserves it. Uh, so Satan, as far as we understand, was one of the three archangels that we know of, Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. 
And as far as we understand, he was the chief of those three. He has fallen, and even they don't speak against him because he has a position in the authority of God. Now, he doesn't have authority. He mean, he's been taken out of it, but they still look at him, and he had authority. We're going to give him the honor that the, author, the, the position demands. And this is something in the military you hear a lot. You need to honor the uniform even if you can't stand the person that's in it. And what they mean is you may not like that chief or sergeant or lieutenant or captain or, or even the admiral or the, or the general, but you will honor the rank and give them the rank, you know, what they deserve. And that is a scriptural thing. God teaches that in the Bible. You honor the title, whether the person in the title deserves it or not. Oh, it's a very hard thing to get used to, and it's very difficult. You know, especially if the person's being a jerk. You know, and in the military, you have no choice. You are assigned to somebody, and you, you can't just say, I quit. You can quit at the end of your, of, your, of your enlistment, but you can't just say, I don't like this guy, I quit. Now, we can do that in the business world. I don't like this, I don't like this owner of the business, I quit. But the question is, should we? And even then, we should not be speaking evil about that person. Because that's a dangerous place. When you go against the authority that God has placed into, into position, you're putting yourself in, in judgment place. So don't speak evil of leaders. If you don't like what they're doing, pray for them. If it's possible and it's really bad, they're, they're wanting you to do things that are illegal, then get, get out from under it and go forward. But still, don't leave. I left one church and I had my reasons why I left it and a friend of mine came and go, why did you leave the church? I go, that's between me and God. He goes, well, I'm your friend. You can tell me. I go, well, tell, show me that in the Bible where it says that and I'll tell you. I go, I have my reasons and they're between me and God. And I thought they were legitimate reasons and still to this day I think they were legitimate reasons, but nobody needs to know what they were. Because if God had others that needed to leave, he'd show them the same thing and they would have to make their decision. Not my job to point out other, other leaders' problems. And so this is what he's saying. Don't speak out against these people. Don't disdain them. St to speak out against the leaders? Yes, it is a rebellion. It is a sin. And it's one of the dangerous places we in America have. Because every two, four, and six years, we get to speak out against our, <laughs> against our leaders who are running for office. <laughs> And we can get very loose on our tongue sometimes and, and say things that we shouldn't be saying. Now, I, can have, I go, you know, this person doesn't stand for what I believe, and I'm not going to, to vote for them, and that's a fine, fine. Here's what God says. Here's what, they, what they've done and, done and said. We cannot, we cannot support them. We, we see here this whole idea of authority. And God places authority. He's the ultimate authority. We are, we are answerable to him. And this is where people, well, what if my authority asks me to do something that is illegal? Then you obey, the, you obey the, the right authority that's legal, and you take your consequences for disobeying your, your local authority. And I've talked about this. When the disciples said, we have to obey God rather than man, they weren't saying, you have no right to punish us, and we're not going to take your punishment because we're obeying God. They go, we have to obey God. You go ahead and do whatever you think you have to do, but ultimately, we have to obey God. And they took their beatings, they took their jail time, they took all of that, and they took it patiently. Why? Because they were looking to heaven, knowing that God would honor their position of authority. 
knowing that their current authority had the right to, to punish them for disobeying their laws. Even though their law was wrong, they still had the right to be to punish because that's who they were. God put them in place. And that's a hard, that is really hard to say, God, I'm going to be obedient to you and then I'm going to get punished for being obedient to you, for doing right, I'm going to get punished. And God says, thank you for your faithfulness. <laughs> huh? Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, Joseph being sold into slavery and not grumbling and griping about it, uh, being thrown into prison, falsely accused, and not grumbling and griping about it, knowing that God was in charge. You know, there's all through the Bible pictures of people who are obedient and suffering for their obedience. Stephen. Stephen gets stoned. You know, why? Because he was preaching in Jesus' name. The disciples, Peter and John, heal a lame man in Jesus' name and get, 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 uh, get uh, beat. God never promised life was going to be easy. Being obedient and following God is not easy. Matter of fact, it can be downright painful in some countries. In the early church, if you were a Jewish believer, you usually were disowned by your family and no, no Jew would come to your business. So basically, you went broke. Your family disowned you. You no longer were alive to them. In the Muslim world today, there are still many people that become Christians, and they're at the very least disowned from their family and or killed because they dared to become a Christian. Is that why when after Jesus was resurrected, everybody sold everything and made it? In Jerusalem, it was a communal pot because they all needed to help each other survive. Because they'd lost their families, they lost their homes, they lost their businesses. So they would take whatever they did have and joined it together. It was not God saying, socialism is the way to go. On everybody just to get together and put everything you own together and, and be socialists. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Even though the socialists grab hold of that verse and say, see, here it is, the Bible teaches socialism. No, it, that was their survival. Now, there may come a time before the return of Christ that we as Christians may go back to that kind of environment when it becomes bad to be a Christian and if you're an out, outspoken Christian, you'll lose everything and then we may need each other's help. One person's good at farming, another person's good at the administration, another person's good at you know, scrounging and finding things they need. and We may have to come together and do that kind of living together again. I don't know. It's possible. They did it because of sheer necessity. That is why Paul went out collecting money from all the churches in, in my, uh, Asia Minor to bring an offering back to Jerusalem to support the Christians that were living in poverty because they lost all that they had. So he went all to the churches. All these churches, you don't have the same problem. They do. You've got your businesses. You're doing okay. The church in Jerusalem is starving to death because they're losing, they've given up everything for Christ. They have nothing. So he brought an offering to the church in Jerusalem from the other churches that had wealth. So yes, that is exactly what it was about. Then in verse 12, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So now we're going back to the people in verse 12. These as natural brute beast. 
those governed by their nature. You know, there's a long debate in our day's world about whether animals have any cognizant feelings or if they're driven purely by instincts. And I know it's a big deal. Those who, those who love their dogs and cats and birds and everything, oh, look at that look. He, that, they love me so much. And, you know, and they're probably looking at you, yeah, you're, you're the one that feeds me. You give me attention. You give me my walks. You give me my water. I really like you. You, you meet all my needs. But here we see the idea, natural brute beasts that he's talking about those that are run by their natural desires that are those are human beings before we are born again through the blood of Jesus Christ we are driven completely by our sin nature and we may be able to control it for short periods of time the sad thing is when we as born again people live this way and he says you're you're living as made to be taken this word is so interesting because it literally means to be captured the brute beast live to be captured ultimately they're going to be captured jesus said the way to heaven is the narrow gate that is straight and few that go in that go into it the way to destruction is wide and many shall go that way. One of the things I saw, though, in that, the wide gate, in the, in the open fields, how do they herd their, their wild cattle back together? They drive them in toward a funneled fence that funnels down into the chute that takes them into the, pat, to the, to the corral or the trucks that's going to take them to the slaughterhouse or to new fields, but usually to the slaughterhouse. What does destruction do? The wide gate? funnels down to destruction. It does. It, 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 it gets narrower and narrower, and you get trapped in there because more and more people are being squeezed in, and you can only go one direction. What happens when we accept Jesus? We get opened up into freedom. You know, we start with a narrow gate. Here's your rules. Here's your restrictions. And then we walk out, and he takes us into great wide pastures of great green pastures fields and gives us freedom to go where we want, do what we want. We, we want to serve him and, and honor him. But the narrow gate opens up into great bounty and riches. The narrow, the wide gate funnels down to destruction. And here he's saying these natural brutes are taken and destroyed. They go to perish. And in the in-between time, they speak evil of things they understand not. Things that they're ignorant about. It is, it is fun, and I've shared with you, I love talking to the lost world, and they say, they say things that they think are so smart. You know, and it's so funny to, to, to start talking to them. Something as simple as, well, you know you can't trust the Bible. It's full of contradictions. And you all know I've told you how to answer that one. Name one. Well, I know it's full of them. No, no, I don't want it to full of. Give me one so we can talk about one. Well, I don't know. Well, then I suggest you get into the Bible, read, find these, find these contradictions, and then we can talk about them. But, you know, all the ignorance that goes along with it. You know, when evolutionists speak, and they speak with their, their ideas of what they think is so smart, and you just start pricking it with little pins all over the place. Well, you know, millions of years ago, this galaxy was created. I see. Oh, how old's the sun? 
It's, it's four, you know, three, 300 billion years old or whatever they give you. Well, there's not enough helium in the sun to be three, 300 billion years old. If it was 300 billion years old, it would have been too close to the, to the Earth at its current rate of shrinkage to, to have had the Earth been in existence. All these little things you can say, you know, oh, oh and how, do, how does energy start in the first place? According to the laws of thermodynamics, it's always existed. It doesn't get created or destroyed. It just changes its state. Uh, so where did it come from? Well, it's always been here. Well, then we run into the problem of the second law that says it would be dead by now, entropy. Uh, well, you, know, you start pinning them down. You know, where did life come from? Well, you know, out of that pool of water that gathered up on the rocks, it, all of a sudden lightning struck the, the chemicals and life jumped out of it. But doesn't science say that life doesn't, doesn't jump out of nothingness? Life always has to come from life. Well, yeah, well, didn't, we had one time when it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, it is an amazing thing when you just, there's circular logic and you can pin them down. Will they accept it? No. Until God breaks into their mind and their heart, they're not going to accept it. But they speak ignorantly of things they do not understand. And they think that when they get to heaven, they're going to be able to talk to God and explain their decisions to God. When they stand before the perfect, holy, righteous God, they're, they're not going to be able to speak a word. Most of them probably couldn't speak if they were standing in front of a king or a president, much less stand in front of God. All right? And we see here that they're destined to perish in their own corruption, their own pollution of their body, their own disgrace. And shall receive the reward for, uh, of unrighteousness, as, they, as they, they that counted pleasure to riot in the daytime, spots are they in blemishes, sporting themselves in their own deceivings while they feast with you. They shall receive the reward or the wages of unrighteousness. There is a wage. Every time we, time we do something, we are going to pay a cost. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of obedience is blessing and just a pure heart. If I do what is right, I no longer have to be looking over my shoulder wondering if somebody's watching me. I don't have to be looking over my shoulder waiting for the police to catch me or the punishment to fall on me. Whenever I do unrighteous acts, there's guilt. I'm looking around. When am I going to get caught? How am I going to get caught? Everybody's going down the wide gate whether they, until, until and if they go through the, the narrow gate of Jesus Christ. Going down the wide gate is not us as Christians. If we are a Christian, we've gone through the narrow gate and we're being obedient. We're still disobedient. We still have problems that we have to solve. The wide gate doesn't even care. They're not going to care. They'll get some guilt for their sin once in a while. They'll feel bad. They'll know they're not doing right. They'll know they're not happy. They'll know because God is still working on them. And he's saying, come over, here to the, come over here to the narrow gate. Come over to the narrow gate. Come over to the narrow gate. And then there are people who grow up in church thinking they're in the narrow gate that God is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you because they never went through the, the gate. In the Pilgrim's Progress, there's a one of his scenes in the story is, is as Christian is getting further in, this man climbs over the hedge to get into the gate, and he goes, you know, well, what are you doing? He goes, 
Well, my home's so far from the narrow gate, I didn't want to go back to the narrow gate, so I, I just, all of our people climb over the, climb over the, over the hedge to get, to get in the way. And Christians tell them, no, you've, you've, done it, you've done it wrong. And then they get to the gate where they're supposed to say, you know, show their documents, you know, their signed, sealed, and, you know, delivered documents, and, then, and the one is cast into hell because he did not enter the way he was supposed to. And so it is very important for us as Christians, have we come into a relation with Jesus Christ? And if you've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, there will be things that have changed in your life, and you go, God, I know that you've made me who you are, who I am. I have no doubt that God has changed me. Right from the very beginning, when I, get, when I was saved at 10 years old, a major change happened in my life when God took away my temper and made me more peaceful. Now, he didn't clear all my sins out, <laughs> but he made a huge change in my life. And I go back and I say, yes, <laughs> I, I did not change overnight the way that, that I did. I didn't go from having fights all the time and being angry with everybody you know, every single day to rarely, rarely losing my temper on my own strength. It was a miraculous. Now, there's many things that God has had to work in my life over long periods of time that I have fought over. You know, and we look at, you got a man like Saul of Tarsus being saved, you know, and, and instantly God humbles him and makes him a much humbler person. He's a Pharisee. You know, he's a smart person. And what do they do to get him out of Damascus? They lower him out of the city in a basket. You know, would, would a very prideful honor, man full of honor have done that? God changed him greatly and gave him a love for people, especially Gentiles. And we see this all through Scripture where God changes people's hearts in a mighty way. You look at Moses. Moses was an angry man. Moses was a guy with great pride. God broke his pride by putting him on the backside of the desert for 40 years. Broke his anger, mostly. <laughs> But he also taught him to love a very rebellious people. When God says, I'm going to destroy all these people and start with you, Moses, God says, no, you, Moses says, no, God, you can't do that. You know, take me if you have to, but, you know, they, they need you. you. Your testimony will be lost if you destroy them. They'll say you, you were powerful enough to take them out, but you couldn't take them into the promised land. He loved his people, even as rebellious as they were and even as quick-tempered as he was with them, but his temper was not as bad as, as it was in his earlier days. <laughs> he, did, he, didn't, he didn't kill them and he didn't let God kill them yeah. uh, so we do see this, this process and this is what I tell people when you got saved what changed in your life besides being having my temper taken away God gave me a love for his word that has been there ever since he gave me a love for his people to go to church there needs to be something in your life that God has given you that is a change in your life because it says when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I believe there has to be something, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I really believe that there has to be at least one thing you look in your life and say, God, thank you. you yeah, I know that you changed me. I know you came into my life. And then we have our conversations with him and we watch him work in our life and we watch the things he does for us. And, wow, God, you know, and people look at, you Christians are just so lucky. No, we're blessed. Our Father loves us. You know, not that we're perfect, not that we have everything that we ever want, but, you know, in most cases for a Christian, things generally go right more often than they go wrong. 
You know, we may have trials, we may have tribulations, but we can see why God allowed that. And I love, I love in the, the hiding place where Corey said that her sister told her she had to be thanking God for the fleas in their barracks. And she goes, there's no way I'm blessing God for fleas. Now, what was the great blessing? I think you've all heard this before. You know, the guards wouldn't come into their dorm so that they, into their dorm to molest them, and they were able to do Bible studies in the dorm, in their in their barracks because the guards wouldn't come in because of the fleas. Was that were the fleas a good thing? Not necessarily, but God used them to be a great thing. Better than the alternatives, Better than the alternatives for them. So we look at this and. When we're God's children, he will start showing us the good in what's going on and how he is using it for our blessing and for our keeping. And he says, and we keep going on, they get their reward as they counted pleasure to riot in the daytime. Now this word for riot does not mean to go out tearing everything up. <laughs> All right. This word for riot means to be at ease and do nothing. It's kind of the picture of when a nation becomes wealthy and the people start looking for pleasure. And this happens at the end of every nation. And America is here at this, at this stage. They don't want children because children are a bother and they cause them problems and keep them from spending money on their stuff. They want to be entertained, basically entertained to death. And they want to be lazy and do less and less work. Our country is at that stage right now. We don't like to have children, for the most part, because children are a bother. You know, I don't want to have children until I can afford to have them. And I tell people, then you'll never have a child. Because you can never afford a child. And the longer, the longer you wait to have a child, the more you get used to the lifestyle you're, you're living, and the more the child is going to interrupt your, your life. So you can never afford to have them. So we're getting to a place where people don't have children. And what are we looking to do? What can I entertain myself with? You know, I don't want to have children because I couldn't go out to eat most five times a week. I wouldn't be able to just pick up and go out on a trip or the cruise or the Bahamas or a plane trip or out, you know, out to do whatever because I have something that's holding me down. This is where we're at in our day and age. That's what riot means in this. They're just looking and then in the daytime. What are you supposed to do in the daytime? You're supposed to work and earn a living. And he says, they just want to lounge around and be entertained when they're supposed to be working. We see here that he says they counted as their pleasure. And he says they are spots and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they eat, uh, while they feast with you. And this whole idea of sporting, catching, you know, they're, they're just, this whole idea of sporting, if you remember in the King, King James, sporting literally means to play, play at in inappropriate ways. If you remember when uh, Jacob lied about his wife, uh, when Isaac lied about his wife and the king looked down and they were sporting together, uh, which means they were cuddled and, and hugging and the, and the king comes out and goes, surely this is not your sister. <laughs> uh, this is not the way you act around your sister. <laughs> this is what they're talking about, inappropriate activities that they're, that they're doing while they're at, with you and you know, in your entertainment of, with you. 
and this is something, this is one of the reasons I don't really like being around the lost world. They are just inappropriate in their language and their activities and what they do. And the problem is they don't see anything wrong with it. And you're going, no, I don't want to talk like that. No, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to hear that. No, I want, don't want to see that either. And this is what he's saying. They take pleasure. The lost people take pleasure in that. And sometimes they take pleasure in irritating you as a Christian. You know, and I don't know if they do it on purpose. I, sometimes I hope they're not. Sometimes I think they are. But, you know, sometimes I think people realize they have power over somebody without really realizing that they do. You know, they just know, they know the buttons to push to get you irritated. Um, you know, husbands and wives know each other's buttons real well a lot of times and, and know what God says they're supposed to do and maybe they do it, maybe they don't. Maybe they use it inappropriately. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. Then he goes on with these people. They have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Their eyes are full of de desire and lust and activity. And this is where we are in our world. Sexual activity is not a problem in this world. And it says their eyes are full of idolatry. And Jesus identified the adulteress as somebody that lusts after somebody. And I think Peter's playing on that. Their eyes are full of lust. They're lusting all over the place. And you've got to understand, they lived in the Roman Empire. Sexual activity was not a problem to the Romans. Matter of fact, rape and incest and everything else was not a problem. If you were strong enough to get what you wanted, it was your right to, do, to take it. And you know, here, Peter's playing on that. He goes, these guys are full of this. They're full of this activity. The sad thing is we in our country are getting to that place right now where we're getting rapes and activity all over the place and it's not even thought of twice. Well, I wanted it, I took it. They didn't get hurt. They wanted it anyway. Yeah, and this is what he's talking about, that kind of an attitude, their eyes. But I love that sent the sentence here in 14. And that cannot cease from sinning. Without the power of God in our life, we cannot stop sinning. It's hard enough with the power of God in our life, being submitted to God. Without it, and if you think back to the times when you were locked into a sin, you were a slave to some sin. You hated it sometimes. You wanted not to do it. You'd stop doing it for a period of time, and then it'd come back with a vengeance. You would even, when you were in the middle of doing it, you hated it and weren't enjoying it. But you were powerless to get over it. One of the things I keep hearing in all these different testimonies I hear is people talk about how they hated their sin, how they wanted to get out of it. They didn't want to be drinking. They didn't want to be abusing their spouse. They didn't want to be ignoring their kids. They, you know, they didn't want to be moving around all the time because of you know, the, the bad things that were happening because of their sins, and yet they couldn't stop it. And that is a testimony I hear over and over and over from people. And if you, lived, if you got saved later on in your life, it was probably the life you lived. <laughs> Caught up in your sins, not being able to be victorious. And this is what it says, cannot cease. You may do it for a short period of time, but in the long run, without God, you cannot have victory over sin. You may be one of those very disciplined people. I am going to be disciplined. I am not going to be doing this. But you know what? Even that very disciplined person is thinking about it an awful lot 
and they're pushing it down because it's not part of their testimony that they want, not part of their, their lifestyle. I'm a professional. I can't, I can't do this. You know, I really would like to. <laughs> I really want to, but I'm not going to do it. They're just as guilty. They're just, a, they're, they're just a little more powerful in their dedication not to do it. But ultimately, what you think about will come out. What, you're, what, you're, what is filling your mind, what is the treasure of your heart, will always flow out eventually. This is why it's kind of interesting when you're walking around people and you listen to their idle words when they think nobody's really paying attention. You know, they talk about, they, they say all the right things. I want, I want everybody to think I'm a Christian. I'm going to tell them how much I love people and how graceful, grace, you know, grace-oriented I am and how forgiven I am. And then you hear them talking to, I just can't stand that person, you know, they're doing this, you know, and they don't think you're listening, and all of a sudden it's like, uh-huh, what's in your heart? <laughs> Not what you were showing out to the rest of the world. It, it will come out eventually. It always will. And we all know that that's true in our life. Whatever is in our heart, even when we're a Christian and we're trying to learn something, God will make what, what he's teaching us come out, either with victory through him or to embarrass us when people see what we really are. And we know, you know it, you know, little people slip, obviously. But you kind of know when somebody really loves other people and when they're being kind to other people and they're generally kind to people. Yes, they might get mad once in a while and say something, something hard, but you know that that person most of the time is being kind. You know that what's in their heart is that love and kindness. When they're usually forgiving and you know, and every time you're around them, you know they're being forgiving. They forgive you, they forgive others. <laughs> and you go, oh, okay, yes, that person really is somebody that has learned to forgive. And this is not these people. <laughs> you know, these people cannot, and I, and I found it interesting that it says, cannot cease. And beguiling, cheating, catching people, unstable souls, beguiling, unstable souls, a heart have they exercised with covetous practice, cursed children. The whole idea, they're unstable. It is amazing to me to watch the lost world and how unstable they are. Bouncing back and forth. Part of it is what's going on in their mind. I hate what I'm doing. I'm going to try to stop. And they get very unstable because they're doing what they don't want to do. Deep down, you know, deep down, the person goes, well, I'm just... Uh, you know, they may even tell you, I love it. I, I love doing this. But in the ultimate thing, they usually do not. You know, they're unstable. Their mind is telling them one thing. Their heart is telling them one thing. Maybe they've, maybe they've catheterized their conscience and, and seared it so it's not bothering them anymore that much. But it keeps popping up. Even when a cut has been sealed by catheterization, it can still open up and bleed again. And that's what, this, what the soul does. All right, conscious, we're going to sear you, sear you on. Pump, 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 pump. <laughs> All right, get back. <laughs> get back down. You're irritating me. <laughs> and they get irritated by that. And it says they have covetous practices. Covetousness, desiring what is not theirs. And we live in an age that is full of people trying to get us to covet. We see here... They're unstable, covetous, cursed children. Every human being that is born is born cursed. We have a curse of the sin nature. 
we are headed to hell. Now, the world likes to think that, you know, there's, there's certain people that are they're more cursed. You know, these are the cursed ones. They are really bad. No, you're cursed too. You're, you're headed to hell without Christ. You were cursed by being born dead. And in reality, we as human beings are born dead. We have a body and a soul. We're meant to have a spirit. When Adam and Eve sinned, their spirit died immediately. And every child that's been born since is born dead spiritually. Animated bodies, thinking bodies with a soul, but dead toward God. That is why Jesus said you must be born again. Born of the spirit and the water. Not just the flesh, but born in the spirit where he gives us a spiritual life. And then once we have a spiritual life, we now have the power to live righteous. We have the power to do godly things. Now, will we? That depends on which one we want to feed the most. If I want to sit there and feed, the, feed my spirit with the word of God and teaching and, and praise and meditation, I will, be, I will be more victorious in my living. I will make better decisions. I will come to a decision and say, okay, God, uh, what should I choose? Maybe consciously, maybe not consciously. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Trust in the Lord. Is that an easy thing to do? Nope. <laughs> Is it easier the more I know him? Yes. The more I know his word? Yes. Because I start making a decision and that little still small voice says, don't covet. Don't commit adultery. Don't have any other idols in front of me. Now, whether we listen to it or not, it's another story. <laughs> but it's there, just whispering. I know you think you're going to get away with it. I know you think it's going to be fun. I you know you think there's no wages for doing it, but there is. And we start hearing his word. We get ready to grumble because we're, we're having the worst day ever. Everything has gone wrong that day. And all of a sudden, the spirit comes back and says, all things work together for good. God, I don't want to hear that right now. I'm having a miserable, terrible day. I deserve to complain that you've let, you've let all these bad things happen to me. All things work together for good. When I was reading the Billy Sunday book, you know, uh, his wife had a habit. Every time he would not think he was doing good enough or something was going wrong, her, she would just say, I don't think God's taken Romans 8.28 out of the Bible yet. And he'd go, okay, you're right. <laughs> But it got to a place where it became a private joke between them. You know, anytime they, either one of them would grumble, God hasn't taken Romans 8.28 out of the book yet. What is ours? You know, you know, and that one struck me because I love that verse. That is one of my life verses. And each one of us, and it's kind of funny because you listen to these people and it's a different verse in the Bible that really strikes home to people. And they go, that's, that's it, God. That's the one that you use to change my life. That's it. That's the one I love. And I really do think that Romans 8.28 and Galatians 2.20 are the two verses that God has used to change my life and really grab hold of me and say, trust in me. Trust in me. And this is where we are at with this. These people that are without God cannot choose to be obedient. They can pretend for a while. They can look like they're good. But ultimately, they are a prisoner to sin a slave to sin, and cannot choose otherwise without being born again and having the power of God inside them. 
And this is why it is important to have this area in our life. And I challenge people, when did you accept Christ? When did you purposely accept him into your life and tell him that you're a sinner and you needed him? Not, well, God, I've always been around you. Well, that's probably going to end up in hell. Okay, because I've seen many people, especially people who grow up in a church. Because there has to be a point at which you say, God, you're no longer my parents' God. You're no longer my grandparents' God. You are my God. I choose you. I choose you to be my God. Yeah. And a lot of times people just kind of go on, well, this is what I've always believed, so I'm going to keep believing it. Yeah, I know this thing, Jesus, I know Jesus came to this world. I know he died for sin. I think he died for my sin, but, you know, you know, but I never really made that commitment. We've got to be able to say, God, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. God, you died for my sins. Come into my heart and save me because I need you. And again, I've said this over and over. It's not just the words. Those are the right words. But it's not, abracadabra, you're saved. <laughs> Many people have gone forward and they've said the words but they didn't believe them. And they don't even have to be these words exactly. You could be in the bottom saying, God, I am so miserable and I'm so, so far out. God, help me. And you may be saying in that prayer, God, I can't do it on my own. I need you. And all of a sudden, he comes in and changes your life. And I've seen people, that's their testimony. All they did was get so far down, they said, God, help me. And then they went to find somebody who was a Christian and get into the Bible and, and find a good church. They didn't say that, God, I'm sorry for my sin coming into my life. They go, God, help me. And that really is what the prayer is. God, I surrender. I need you. When is that point in our life where I surrender my entire life to God? God, I cannot do this anymore. I need you. Mine was at 10 years old. Why at 10 years old did I feel that way? I don't even remember. It was so long ago, I don't even remember. But I know that I knew that I needed God. I probably looked at my family and saw how miserable they were not following God. You know, a father who was drunk, a grandfather who was always drunk and lost many jobs and had to move the family around all the time. You know, looking at where I would be without God and saying, God, there's no hope. And I really didn't have a lot of hope. I didn't have a lot of friends. We moved around all the time. I was an angry person. Nobody wanted to be around me because they might get hit. And looking at what, was, what was my future was and saying, God, I need you. And he came in and changed my life drastically. And then two years later, my dad got saved and I had a great time. I was able to go to church more than Sunday morning. You know, where is that point in our life where we said, God, I need you. I have no other hope. And this is what I keep saying. With Jesus, there is no plan B. You know, if you're making a plan B for some other way to, to please a deity out there, you don't have salvation reliance on Christ. Because if God isn't who he says he is, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, if he didn't do what he says he did, I have no hope. If it's all about good works like so many other religions say, I'm in trouble because I am not that good a person. I am not good enough to outweigh my bad, and I know it. Even though I'm better than a lot of people, I know that I'm not good enough to outweigh the bad because I know how bad sin is. 
And if there's no other hope, if God isn't who Jesus isn't who he says he is, then I've wasted my life. Now, the good news for me is I don't feel like wasting my life because of all the blessings he's given me on this world, I know he is who he says he is. He has given me peace that passes understanding. He has given me guidance. He has helped me walk a path through the middle of storms and not be bothered by the storms because I'm walking in him and look back and saying, wow, God, that was, a, that was pretty bad. How did, how did we get through it without feeling anything? How did we get through that hard storm, God? You, you really are true. You protect. You guide. Because he is so honest in what he's done in this lifetime, I know that he will be honest for eternity. And even if there is no eternity, I've not lost anything anyway because I've had a wonderful life. Yeah, much better than most of the lost people that I have are living a miserable life and they're going to have a really miserable eternity. Huh? Pretending they're having fun, pretending that, well, even the ones that aren't pretending they have fun. And I've said this for a long time, and I've probably heard it from somebody else because I've heard other people say it. On this life, even though it is not heaven, it's as, as close to heaven as the lost person's going to have. This life is the best they're going to have for all of eternity. And it's nowhere near hell. And for those of us that are in Jesus Christ, this is as, this is as much hell as we'll ever taste. And it's not heaven or hell. It's not even close to either one. But it's as close as you're going to get to the opposite side. If your destination is heaven, this is as close to hell as you're going to experience. If your destination is hell, this is as close to heaven as you're going to get. And it's a miserable heaven. You know, which will also make them bad. You know, They'll be longing to go back. The rich man in the story of the rich man and Lazarus went into hell and he says, I just want to go back to the earth. Yeah, I want to go back to earth. What a miserable, how miserable is heaven that earth seems like the better place? Or how miserable is hell that earth sounds like the, the, that earth is the better place? You know, we need to be very careful about what we desire to see from God. And because he wants us to follow. We are a cursed people without God. And our curse is that we are going to die and spend eternity in hell without Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned, the curse fell on humanity, including them, for all of humanity. And we need to be able to understand that with individuals and say, this is what's important. You know, and it also means that we need to be patient with the lost world. They are slaves to their sin. They cannot do anything but their sin. Which is why we need to be kind to them, love them. Tell them, that they, tell them about God's love. Now, will they really appreciate it and be, oh, I just really want to hear that. No, they're probably going to be angry and upset and belittle us. But those words sometimes have a way of penetrating the brain. And I've said this over and over. Many people get saved in the darkness of their night when the Christian is not around. And all of a sudden, they get this little whisper. What if they're right? I know you think they're crazy, but what if they're right? And it bugs them because they already know that they're guilty, which is why most people stay high and drunk and busy all the time is because they don't want downtime to be thinking. 
They don't want downtime for the Holy Spirit to come in and prick their conscience. So they try to stay drunk all the time. They try to stay high all the time. They try to stay busy all the time. But we as human beings cannot stay in a sinful state all the time. <laughs> and, and then he takes them away. You know, he takes those peaceful times away and just goes, click, you know, prick, prick. And in those times, we need to come to God and say, God, if we're his child, we take those times and say, God, I repent. Get me out of this mess. If we're not his child, we go, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. Help me. Help. And that's really what it comes down to. Help. What is the salvation message really? God, I can't do it myself. I need you. Whether I know Jesus or not. How does many of the Muslims in the world get saved? God, I, cannot, I, I want to find you and I can't find you and this, this legalistic system is not it. I need you. And what happens? They usually get saved right at that moment and God brings a Christian in their path to show them what it is they believed. The Indians, when they first met, many of the missionaries would go, we're ready to hear the rest of the story. We, we've been told part of the story. We don't know the complete story. They know they need God. The world knows they need God. And that surrender to him is what ultimately is salvation. Yes, it's because of Jesus. Yes, it's because of his blood. But when I get into that place where I say, Jesus, God, I need you, he'll reveal himself to us. Whether it's Saul with a bright light, <laughs> or it's the Ethiopian eunuch with, with uh, Philip coming in and, and just happening to be in the right place at the right time to talk to him or a missionary coming from the middle of nowhere to give you the rest of the story or knowing somebody who's just a little bit insane because they don't like act like everybody else and you go god i need your help and you go find them to find out why they're different how god works i don't know all i know is there's been times when i've met people when i was really down and they just came into my life at the right moment to just give me a word of edification, a word of advice, a word of, of maybe even rebuke. And we don't like to hear rebuke. We, even as Christians, we're not any better at re hearing rebuke and being happy with it than a non-Christian. It still irritates us. Our flesh still will creep up on, who are you to speak that way to me? But if we humble ourselves and go, okay, God, and this is something we need to do. If somebody gives you a, a word of rebuke, even if they do it wrong and they're nasty and mean about it, try to keep your cool with them and say, God, is there, is there some truth in what they said? Usually, usually yeah, especially if you got angry, even if, even if they were being stupid. If you got angry about it, there's usually something in there that was true. You know, you think, oh, thank you, I'll, I'll pray about it. You know, uh, there's gentle ways to be able to rebuke somebody. And, but even if they do it completely wrong, give it some thought. God, were you trying, did you really mean to use that person and they just got in the way? <laughs> Help me to understand and really look at your life and say, is this where I'm at? I get that all the time on the radio when I listen to these guys on the radio. And I know they're just talking right to me. You know, they, they, knew, they knew I was going to be listening to them on the day that I was listening to them and preach their message just for me. You know, and, yeah, Ralph, this message is for Ralph on, you know, and I know, that, I mean, you know, I'm being facetious, I know it was God knew, God knew, 
And it's like, okay, God, all right. Especially when all the pastors that day talk about the same thing. You know, it's like, all right, God, I got it the first 20 times. I don't need to hear it anymore. Yeah. But, you know, we need to be very patient with those that are lost. Even with weaker Christians who are learning to grow in Christ. Because if we think back, if I try to remember what was I like 48 years ago when I first got saved, and when I tell people, like, you know, God has taken a temper, they go, you? Yeah, well, if you'd have known me 48 years ago, you know, you wouldn't have wanted to have been around me. If I hadn't got saved, I'm absolutely sure that I would have ended up in prison for killing somebody because that's how bad my temper was. I would have killed somebody somewhere over something stupid, probably. But, you know, what has God changed in our life? We need to be very patient with people, love them, build them up, not let them get away with it necessarily. But, you know, been praying for you. And if you're not praying for them, don't, don't try to correct them. But when you've been praying for them, I've been praying for you, and I'm really concerned about what I see you doing in this area of your life. And just leave it there. You know, not repent, you sinner. Get right with God. <laughs> you know, when we first get saved, that's usually how we go to our family, isn't it? Mom, Dad, you're going to hell. You've got to get saved so you don't go to hell. I want to see you in heaven. Uh, yes, son, that's exactly the way I want you to present the gospel message to me. Now go to your room. I don't know if I'm going to let you go back to that church if that's what they're telling, teaching you to talk to us like. But, you know, even though we are learning to follow God, we need to be very patient with people and build and edify because they cannot help what they're doing. They are a slave to that sin. Just as we all have areas where we are a slave to the sin that we haven't surrendered to God and let God give us victory over. All of us have something in our heart that we have not surrendered completely. If we didn't, we would be perfect, and we're not all perfect yet. And if we were perfect, we'd probably be Enoch and we'd be in heaven. Enoch, as far as we know, is the one, you know, and Elijah are the two that have got as close to perfection as possible. And as the joke goes, God says, you and I are so close, you might as well come up here with me now for those two people. You know, huh? I'm not, I'm not expecting to be translated any time you know, unless the rapture happens and that'll be taken with the entire church. But it won't be an individual rapture like they had. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your care. We thank you, Lord, that you give us power to no longer be the slave of sin. Lord, teach us to be patient with those around us that are enslaved with sin, not to accept their sin, but to be gentle, to be kind. And we just thank you. And Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message today and, or on the internet in the future that don't know you, we ask that today they will confess their sin to you and ask you for your help and turn their life over to you as Lord and Master. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.